Welcome to The Pursuit, a podcast produced by the Junior Board of the Chicago Midwest Chapter of the National Academy of Television Arts and Sciences, otherwise known as NADIS. We are a group of emerging media professionals seeking insight from leaders in our fields. I'm Anthony Landall. I'm an aggregated content producer with Nextar Media in Chicago, and I'm also your host for this episode. Our guest today is a local chapter board member, Nick DeGrazia. He is the co-founder and creative director of Bitter Jester Studios, located north of Chicago in Highland Park. Bitter Jester works with branded and marketing video. It's won regional Emmys and was even nominated for a James Beard Award, which hails from the restaurant and culinary industry. Nick is also a part of the non-for-profit, the Bitter Jester Foundation, which hosts the Bitter Jester Music Festival. So our conversation touched upon building your own business, but also the love of all things music and art. So without further ado, I give you Nick DeGrazia. All right. Well, so the first question we want to always start off with is when was the moment you knew you wanted to pursue the career you have now? Yeah, I think, you know, it happened in high school. So I'm going to back up a little bit. In, In junior high, I... I'm from a very young age. I always, always, always wanted to be an astronomer. I've just like, I'm a big science fiction fan. I'm a big like uh, geek when it comes to celestial bodies and the universe and like the mind exploding moment when you're trying to figure out how can the universe be infinite? And if it isn't infinite, where the fuck is it? You know, like I just, my brain shuts down. That's, you know, that was kind of like the driving force. And I remember doing a vocational project in seventh grade and you had to pick a career and explore it. And I picked astronomy and discovered through that vocational project that astronomers spend most of their time sitting behind a desk, like doing paperwork. And I was like, oh man, like I want to be out in the field. I want to be looking through telescopes and discovering comets and all that stuff. And I was crushed. I was like, my life was over. I was devastated. I'm like, I can't be an astronomer. And I was, I felt lost. Like I didn't know what I wanted to do. And it's funny because it's like seventh grade, you're a baby, you know? So then around that time, I was doing sketch comedy on video just for fun with friends. Also a big like Monty Python and Muppets fan. And so we were doing videos and just editing them for fun. And this was like, it was all camera cutting because nobody had a computer with anything. And so I learned that there's this thing called public access, and this is like, this predates YouTube. Uh, So there's a cable company down the street, and people are like, oh, you know, you could get your stuff on television. And I was like, I had no idea about that. So I went to the public access station around like eighth grade, freshman year of high school, and learned how to edit on a three-quarter inch deck. And we had our own sketch comedy show on television in high school, and it, we had like a primo slot. It was like 6.30 or 7 o'clock at night on a Friday on Channel 19, and this was when there were only a handful of channels. So people actually had to go around the dial, and people were watching our show. And I started to do more projects in high school where instead of like getting up in front of the class and talking, which I was petrified to do, I would ask the teacher, could I do a video presentation instead? And my, nine times out of 10, they said, yeah. So I started doing video work and around, I I think it was like sophomore year, maybe I'm like, I'm enjoying this. I'm having fun. 
I'm entertaining people, I'm making them laugh, and I'm learning how to like read an audience because every video I did was geared toward like the people in that particular classroom and that teacher. So I'm learning all these weird skills and then one day I'm just like, people get paid to do this. Like, I was like, I should look at film school and that was, that was it. And so I started looking at film schools and I wanted to make sure I went to a school that had a good film program and a marching band. That was very important because I'm a, I'm a band nerd. Um, and so I ended up at the University of Miami and uh, double majored in uh, film and anthropology and screenwriting. I like did it all. I was the first person to graduate from UM with a Bachelor of Fine Arts in Visual Communication. Um, and then came back to Chicago and with my business partner who I had known since high school and we kind of coincidentally went to college together. We were like, do we go to grad school or do we start a company? And I had already started a business because of the sketch comedy that we were doing that was making money. And the goal was always to kind of like expand into filmmaking. And so we were like, well, let's, let's, you know, do this company thing and we'll give it five years. And that was 20 years ago. So. And that takes me into my next question was better jester. That's the origin story then of, of your studio, right? Yeah. That's kind of like the, that's the broader, um, that's the broader origin story. I think specifically the name, cause everybody says, you know, how, where's bitter jester come from? So, you know, I'm one of those people who I just have my hands in a lot of different projects. I'm interested in a lot of different things. I don't ever sit still and I, and I get very hyper-focused on like one thing at a time. And I'm, I, it's hard for me to finish projects, but I'm great at starting them and getting people energized about stuff. Um, so we were doing sketch comedy in the late 90s, and there was a character called the Bitter Jester, who was my, my buddy Charles, who would come out on stage in a very overtight jester outfit and would get very uh, irate and angry when the audience would laugh at him. So on the surface, it's just kind of a goofy thing, like a jester who's very angry. Oh, it just amused me. But like back in the day, you know, in medieval times, the jester was the person who could get away with criticizing authority and not getting their head chopped off because they, they're kind of in that weird most of the time, right? Um, and I loved the idea of, I let, I'm a big fan of irony, and I just love the idea of someone who has that kind of power and hates their job, right? They don't, they don't see the forest for the trees. And as we came up with company names, because the bitter jester predated our company, Bitter Jester just kept making, we had a list of like 200 ridiculous names for companies and some were boring and some were funny and Bitter Jester kept making the cut, kept making the cut and after a while we were like, why don't you just call yourselves Bitter Jester Entertainment and, and we were like, are we going to be taken seriously? Will people not want to hire us? And we went with it and the name has morphed a little bit over time. It was Bitter Jester Entertainment, which became Bitter Jester Creative, which became Bitter Jester Studios and then we've branched out into different ventures. Um, and I can't tell you if people haven't hired us because of the name, because how would I know? But I can tell you that people have hired us because of the name. This is an interesting, quirky company. And so we've ended up working with people that are just fun and interesting. And, you know, if the name Bitter Jester is off-putting to you, probably not the kind of person we want to be working with, you know, to begin with. So. And you, and you work with a lot of, you work in documentary, you work with brands, educational, ed, uh, entertainment video. You have, you, like you said, you kind of have a hand in every area. Since this is a podcast for younger people and this question might date me, I don't know. Has the idea of like a production company morphed over the years or has it always been kind of this multifaceted hands in a different bag? all the time. No, so that's a great question. And 
That's a really, really important question, I think, for people who are looking at getting into this industry as a way to make money and have a career, right? And have fun. I mean, I, I have always done what I do because it's fun and I enjoy it. I've never done what I do because I want to make a lot of money. And that's probably a bad thing. <laughs> you know, I think there is a way to do both for sure. Um, and as I've gotten older, the money has started to equalize with the fun. And there's things that we do that aren't so fun. But, um, you know, we, we've always been multifaceted because personally I'm interested in a lot of different things. And so the projects that we do tend to be all over the place. But that's also the nature of the business. And so it's a good fit for me. I think if you're the kind of person who's, you don't maybe necessarily even know what you want to do, but you know you want to be involved in production, that's okay. Because you're going to start out maybe interested in writing and end up doing location management. Or you, maybe you want to be a director, but you really fall in love with art direction instead. That's great. I mean, this, this business that we're in offers so many opportunities for people who have different skill sets and who are interested in different things to try a lot of stuff out while still being kind of on set or in a pre-production room. Um, and then more to the point too, you don't have to get locked in doing any one particular thing. I actually really enjoy, I mean, I, I direct and produce for a living and I, and I love it, but man, is it nice to get hired by someone else and just be a location manager or just be an assistant director or just write a script because there's so much pressure taken off. I still get to be involved. It's a nice change of pace and we call it like walk away money. You know, it's like when we get hired to just go film someone else's project and then I give them a hard drive with the footage and I don't have to edit the thing. Man, that's awesome. We get a paycheck and we walk away. But I do that a number of times and I'm like, oh, I really wish I could control the story. I wish I could be the one telling the story. And so we always wind up back, you know, in the editing room doing our own work. And the irony is when I told you in seventh grade that the thing that turned me off of astronomy is like having to sit behind a computer, dude, I sit behind a computer like 90% of the time, especially yeah. the last two years, right? So how funny is that? <laughs> that whole idea of like uh, completing projects for your client, uh, when you when you finish a project, are you does it still roll around in your head? Are you thinking about what you could have added? Or when you finish a project, are you done? No, you're never done. Um, the only time you're done is when you're just so sick of it, you know, and you don't want to look at it anymore. But even like jobs that we do that are jobs that aren't on the creative side, and we really try to make everything we do have some sort of a creative kind of bent to it. Even those jobs, it's like you never finish. You just have to stop, you know? I think that's true of any art form, and I really would put broadcasting and television, even if it's news, in the art category, at least on that side of the line. It may not be pure art, you know, especially news, but it is definitely, it's entertainment. I mean, you can't deny that news has to be entertainment or you're going to lose your audience, and that sucks. I don't know that I'm an advocate for that, but it is, a, it is a fact. And anytime you are taking people with different skills and you have, you know, there's a reason why in, in the Emmys, the, uh, the camera operators fall under the photography category. They're, they're photographers and photography is an art form, you know? And, and it's just, um, 
it is, it, it's a challenge, I think, sometimes. And then, you know, you get into that whole art versus business conversation, which I remember learning about in college and then experiencing once I was actually getting clients of my own. You know, even if you're doing a, a, a commercial for a manufacturing company, you're still telling a story in 30 seconds, right? There is an art form kind of aspect to that. And you learn a lot on every single project that you work on. In the beginning of Bitter Jester, what were some of the, the challenges you faced or maybe some of the points where you thought this is going to be a big obstacle? Um, money was probably the biggest one. Uh, for the first two years of our business post-college, both Dan, my business partner, Dan Coleman, and I were newspaper delivery people in Chicago. And so this isn't like quaint on a bike, throwing a paper to a house. Like we were, and this was like back in the, you know, before newspapers really started to decline. It was around um, 2001 or so. And so we would, for a while, for two months, I was doing it seven days a week, but we were five days a week driving downtown, downtown to a warehouse. And it was 10 different products, including the, you know, the Trib and the Sun-Times and all the papers in Chicago. And, and the Sunday Tribune used to be three inches thick. So you imagine delivering 400 of those. I mean, your car is loaded and my car would drive down the road with the, you know, the, the, the ass end scraping the, you know, the highway. And we would basically deliver big bundles of papers to skyscrapers. And then we would come back to, to Highland Park sleep for like two hours and then get up and work for 10 or 12 hours in our business, sleep for two hours and then get up and go deliver papers. And that was because that was a steady source of income. So yeah, it was like, how do we make money while doing this? And so the newspaper job at night was a way to guarantee that we could pay our rent at our office. But at a certain point, and this was both exciting and really petrifying, we were being less productive during the day because we're exhausted and there was more work to do because we were getting clients. And so it's like, we need to cut ties with the night job for our own health. And two years we did that, right? So it's not like this was a little experiment, like this was the thing. And it, and it was stable. And it's very, very difficult as an artist in this business to like get rid of your, st your steady paycheck. You know, the minute we quit our jobs and we, you know, we gave notice and everything, we were like, we're on our own, man. It's like, if we don't get clients, we're fucked. And we've been fucked for 18 years. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it. Dan has a great quote. He's like, you know, being self-employed is being unemployed because you are always chasing after that next client. And because we're in more of an arts kind of a realm and we're not making a widget that's very popular where you just, you spend all the time to design it and then maybe there's refinements. But like once you've got your product, you're mass producing it, you're making money. And we're also not in a subscription kind of a thing where every month we know we have people paying us money for what we do. We don't have clients on retainer. We have a lot of repeat clients, but it took a decade to get to that point. And a repeat client for us is not every month. It's not even every year. Sometimes it's like, once every two or three years. So you have to build up a real big database of clients and then constantly be re-pursuing them because as time goes by, and this goes back to your question about like, um, do you have to be multifaceted? You have to be nimble and you have to be constantly changing and adapting. And the, the ecosystem today of being an independent production company is vastly different than it was 15 years ago because everybody 
not even everybody coming out of college, everybody going into college has a computer editing program. You can shoot a movie on your phone. You know, you shouldn't, in my opinion. But like, everybody has access to the equipment to do what we do that was a lot harder when we started and that it just drives the price down, which as a, you know, I hate to say it, but middle-aged person, you know, my business partner has two young kids and like, they have to go to college someday. We have to pay our rent. We've got rent at our office and rent at our houses and like gear is constantly breaking. It's expensive to be in this business, but you know, it's just, uh, it's like, it's always the, the chase for the clients. And unfortunately I would say four out of five times it comes down to price. And when you're getting undercut on price, because people who are less experienced than you can charge less because they have less overhead. It's a real, it's a real challenge. When you, when you were first starting out, were there any other production companies in your area or did you have a lot of competition or were you, did you approach more with collaborative? Were you trying to be more friendly with, with your enemies? That's a very multifaceted question. Um, to answer the last part first, we're always collaborative. That's just my personality. We've definitely bumped into production companies that are cutthroat and we don't like to work with them, you know? Um, I view this business as we're all in it together. We're all working toward the same ultimate goal, which is just putting good content out there. And I would say, interestingly enough, I think, in my opinion, the companies that are more cutthroat, they're also they don't really care about the art form of it as much. They just wanna, they just wanna make money. Like they just wanna get as many clients and do as much work and pump it out, you know, so that they can go on vacation. And I'm probably, I'm probably uh, a little jaded, you know, in saying that I'm sure there are people out there who, who do respect the art form, but that hasn't really been my experience. The way I look at it, and it goes back to this whole idea of like, I don't mind being a production assistant on someone else's job because I'm going to hire them to work on my job down the road, or I'm going to help them out in a bind or vice versa. We're all in this collaboratively. And you know what? It's like, if we don't get a particular job, it's a learning experience. It's either because we weren't a good fit. They knew someone they had never intended to hire us in the first place, or it was a pricing issue or timing or whatever. We tend to get the jobs that we bid on, but you know, not always. And I don't mind because I've made a connection, you know, with a company. But it's like when we started, um, there, there, were, there were definitely other production companies, but this was again back in the day when like computer editing was relatively new and very expensive to get your hands on an Avid. And now you can, you know, you can have an Avid for a few thousand dollars. Yeah, you can just download it. Yeah, everybody's on Premiere, you know. And so we actually started right out of college working with a local production company. It was a guy working out of his house, so we spent tons and tons of time in his basement. And the first kind of professional project we did out of school was a documentary about how waste management was throwing the recycling in Highland Park, which is where we're from, in the trash. And so Dan and I literally would wear like, not camo, but we would wear like green and brown and we would hide in the bushes and we would film the garbage men throwing the recycling in the trash. And we put wow. a documentary together and ultimately got waste management kicked out of Highland Park. It was a big deal. I mean, some of the guys we filmed lost their jobs. It was awful. You know, they later got rehired as managers for the new company, which felt great, but it was like, 
it was the bad side of like doing an expose because the wrong people get blamed. Um, but that was part of our experience of, you know, working with a local production company. And then around 2008, when the recession hit, a lot of smaller companies kind of went away. And once the economy recovered, there was like an explosion of production companies. I, I remember you used to be able to Google Chicago production company and you'd find us almost immediately. And now it's like there's hundreds and hundreds of production companies. For Chicago specifically, how have you seen that uh, landscape of production companies evolve? And, and versus 20 years to today, like you said, it's an explosion. What is it like now? I mean, I think that the explosion is, you know, it's due to access to the equipment and, and affordability. I mean, it has to be. I don't know what else it would be. I don't think it's like an increased interest in it. I think it's just more people can do it. Um, I also know that Columbia College is pumping out a lot of, you know, great media students. So that certainly puts a lot of uh, people out in the marketplace. But the thing is, like, they don't tend to last very long. You know, there may be 100 production companies now, but, I don't know, 70 of them are going to be gone within three years. So that doesn't worry me so much. It really is about the quality of the, the content that the companies are doing. And then there's bigger ones, like Bottle Rocket Media is one that comes to mind just because we know those guys. But they're awesome, and they're growing, and they're doing really, really cool work. So it's nice to see some of these companies thrive and survive. And, you know, they're effectively doing the same thing we're doing, but I don't view them as competition. It's like, man, what a great resource to have in our, in our pocket. It's just so much better in life to be connected with people in a positive way than to view everybody as your enemy and everybody as your competition. And again, there might be very, very wealthy business people who disagree with that, but that's just not my, it's not my jam, baby. <laughs> when you first started out, what were some, who were some of the, the clients you reached out to and how has those, the different type of clients evolved over over the years? Well, it was a lot of deck-to-deck uh, -deck duplication. We were doing tons of like VHS and CD and DVD duplication. And this was back when like Blu-rays and DVDs were brand new and they cost 20 bucks a pop. So if it failed, it was like very expensive. Um, and, then the, and then a lot of photo montages and all of that is gone. And I don't enjoy doing that work anyway. Um, but that paid the bills for a long time. And now everybody, you know, and their uncle can do a photo montage on their phone you know, and certainly on their computer. So, you know, we just don't do that kind of work. Um, we started out doing, uh, you know, some local commercials and that kind of evolved into storytelling for businesses. And one of our, I think our very, very first client is a guy named Brad Ashman, who has a company called Chicago Renovation and Development. And we did some little like three to five minute overview videos about him working with customers, about him and his business. He's still a client of ours and he still has those videos up on his website and they still generate business for him. That was a that was like the first time where we're like, oh wow, this is a not just a person who needs a mo montage for their kids bar mitzvah or whatever. This is a guy who has a company and we helped him to tell the story of his company and that is generating money for him and there's something to this. And that was sort of like what shifted us into what I call corporate documentary, where it is, you know, it's drier. We're not doing heavy hitting 
you know, documentaries when we're doing a renovation company's story, but it's given us the skills to be able to explore that kind of stuff. And then that slowly morphed into working with a lot of nonprofits. <clears throat> and that is where you can get into more heavy hitting stories. Like there's a, there's a nonprofit that we worked with that, that deals with uh, underage binge drinking. And so we were interviewing, you know, recovering alcoholics who are very young and parents who lost their, their children due to alcohol related accidents and like rape on college campuses related to alcohol. I mean, it's, this is not the kind of stuff that you're joking around with when you're on set. But that gave us the skill set to, to be like, okay, we can tell a really heavy hitting story for an organization that values what we do and can get their message out. And when the camera isn't rolling, we are smiling and laughing and having a good time with people, even though the subject matter is maybe dark or, or sad or, or you whatever. You mentioned you have a music background as well. Do you ever, uh, when it comes to maybe picking the music in the piece, do you get a little bit more giddy than, than most people? Or do you, I guess, where do you rank that on kind of the, the when you think of the elements of the project, where do you rank music? Yeah. Number one, uh, at least in terms of post-production. But oftentimes... Yeah. <clears throat> we have the music picked before we go into production, you know? And so it's, if it's not number one overall, it's very, it's in the top three, you know? I mean, the, the things that can break a, a project are bad audio, bad performances, if that's a stiff interview or an actor who can't act, um, and the music and the writing, those four, right? The writing, the performance the sound quality and, and, the, uh, and the music. Um, I remember when we were doing sketch comedy, I would spend hours and hours and hours with my friends just like over at the public access studio listening to their library of free music. Most of it was crappy, but every once in a while you just, you hear a song and it inspires you and we would write a sketch. And the same is true today. Like we go through music libraries and we're always like squirreling away music that we know we'll use for a certain kind of project. And so we have it all categorized by like dramatic or you know, heartfelt or comedic or whatever. And we love pulling that music. And I have always, and I will always kind of edit to the music. Um, and yeah, I mean, that's just, it's the thing I get super excited about. And because we do this music festival, I'm able to occasionally work with musicians that we met when they were younger and then hire them to do background music for, for our projects, which is a great way to kind of like blend all the different universes together. Yeah, let's get into that. So you have the Bitter Jester Music Festival. That's a part of the Bitter Jester Foundation for the Arts, correct? Your non-for-profit? Yeah, the Bitter Jester Empire slowly growing. Um, <laughs> so Bitter Jester Studios is our for-profit production company. Bitter Jester uh, Enterprises is our like shadow company. It's in the background. It's not a public-facing company, but that's the company that owns all our assets. And it right. owns the trademarks and, and all that stuff. Bitter Jester Studios is what employs Dan and myself. The Bitter Jester Foundation for the Arts <clears throat> is separate. It's a 501c3 um, public charity in Illinois. And that produces a few different programs. One is the Comic Thread, which is our sketch comedy troupe. One is the Purple Shirts, which is a performance ensemble. We donate a lot of these performances to charity auctions. And basically like three actors will show up and we do uh, live short story readings. It's like radio in your living room. So we'll do poems and uh, short plays and short stories and essays, and we just read them in you know entertaining ways. It's great for like 
dinner parties and wine tastings and things like that. And then the biggest program that the nonprofit produces is the Bitter Jester Music Festival. I started this when I was like 25. Um, we just celebrated our 16th year slash 15th season. Thank you, COVID. Um, last year was supposed to be 15, so we switched from 15th year to 15th season. It's all geared toward younger emerging artists, so generally the applications that we get are you know 12 to 21 year olds. And it's just all about showcasing new art and new music. And I don't, I, I stopped playing music in college because I was focusing more on the film stuff. So it's just, you know, selfishly, it's a way for me to keep music in my life and get to meet really cool people. Um, but professionally, I just love putting on a good show. And I am, uh, I'm just really passionate about helping young people to get involved in the arts. You know, and music That's is a great way to do it because you can get an audience involved in that pretty quickly too if the music is good. And it's a multi-week kind of extravaganza of sorts. There's a lot of logistics to it. Was that how it like first started out? Or how did you, in other words, how did you kind of add this to your plate of things to do on top of your business? Well, I'm insane, dude. Like, I, I, don't, I don't sleep. <laughs> um, my health has always been second to, to the work that I'm doing. Um, it's difficult to balance that when you're in a relationship. It's very difficult. Uh, but it wasn't a question of can I balance this or can I do it? It was just, I don't think about that stuff. It was just, I want to do this, so I do it. You're listening to The Pursuit, the podcast produced by the Junior Board of the National Academy of Television Arts and Sciences Chicago Midwest Chapter. I'm John Owens, the Natus Chicago Midwest President. And just a reminder, our annual Emmy Awards take place on Sunday, December 5th at 7 p.m. And we're pleased to have the great comedian Pat McGann back as our host. And we'll have presenters representing all eight markets in our great chapter. We're proud to have World Business Chicago as our sponsor for this year's event. The event's virtual this year due to concerns about the pandemic, but we're really hoping to be back live with you again next year for all of our awards events. Meantime, look for this year's awards show on our website, that's chicagoemmyonline.org, and it's also available on YouTube and the Emmys app. And now, back to the pursuit. When you went into this 15 years ago, did you kind of have the idea in your head of what it would become, or did you just go with it as a group? Hell no, man. I had no clue. I didn't even want to do the music festival. I, I pitched a comedy competition to the city of Highland Park and the city manager at the time said, why don't you start a battle of the bands? Um, and those like eight or nine words totally changed my life. And I was like, I don't want to do like, I don't know anything about it. I don't want to do that. And, and I did it and it was fun. And there was a time around like year three or four where I was like, I just didn't want to do it anymore. But then I started to see the impact that it was having on the performers. And then I really started to fall in love with it. And then we got a professional stage <clears throat> on the, 4th of July, and I'm like, this is a real thing. And as it's grown, I have learned how much of a value to the community and just to the music world this event is. You've obviously had years of experience just to put all these details together and get it to the point where it is. I think kind of taking it back to video or and just production and, and things like that, pr producing is such like an underrated skill. And was there ever a point where you realized I need to make sure my soft skills and my producing skills are on point or did that just, did you learn that when you came with the job? Yeah, it's, uh, you know, producing is one of those things 
unlike writing, that you can't really learn in a classroom. You know, you can learn what the language is and you can learn how to do things and who needs to do what, but right. until you get, and, and you can, you know, this can be part of a class, until you get on a set or you get in a theater building or, you know, in a, in a room planning a music festival, whatever it is, you, you don't really know if you're good at it and you don't know what really needs to be done. I learned more on my first day as an assistant director on a feature film right out of college in one day than I did in four years in, in college. Now what college prepared me for was to know what the hell people were talking about and to know without asking, oh, that's the script supervisor. Those are the, that's the director, those are the actors. You know, that's the art director, that's you know, a production assistant. I knew all that. But how you work with those people didn't have a clue. And man, was it, uh, I cried the first day, it was awful, it sucked. I mean, I was treated like crap. And you know, like I just learned that people, I, you know, I remember I was standing in line at craft services and I was a you know, second AD, so my job is basically to, to work with the production assistants and to shuttle the actors to and from set. And I could not keep production assistants because they were all volunteers. So they were, they were going away and the, the line producer was like, you know, why can't you keep production assistants? I'm like, well, because you're treating them like crap. They're volunteering, you're not even reimbursing them for gas. So when they come and you don't treat them like people, they're gonna leave. And he was like, he looks at me and he goes, I was treated like shit when I was in your position and so I'm gonna treat you, know, you like shit because that's the way it is. And that was the moment for me where I'm like, fuck that. Like that is not, maybe that's the way it is but that is not the way it has to be. You know, and so that's, that's what really helped to kickstart me into like I need to do this for myself. You know, so like I, I, I jettisoned the idea of working, you know, the, the proverbial like working my way up from the mail room going out to LA and and getting into a writer's room and I just wanted to go off on my own. And we don't treat people like crap. We just don't, you know? And uh, it, it doesn't have to be that way. That, that behavior is learned and it's, it's, it's BS, you know? How would you define kind of the, the idea of a good day's work or maybe your definition of success in the business? <laughs> a a good, I'm laughing because a good day's work, I don't know why this is the first thing that came to mind. A good day's work is one where you're not stressed, you know, and, and you get something in well before the deadline. And that doesn't, like, rarely happens. You know, it's like in the, in the production world, it is totally normal, especially in the news world, right? It's totally normal to be turning in the, the, the package that's about to air 30 minutes before it airs or 30 seconds before it airs, right? Yeah, now, that's not right. great. And I don't think any news organization or production facility in, enjoys that, but it is the way that it is. Um, you know, working with clients, it makes them extremely nervous when something isn't done and finished and packaged and ready to go a week before their, their deadline. Um, and sometimes you just have to, you have to make that happen. But, you know, there's so many moving pieces that it becomes, it becomes difficult. But, you know, a good day's work on the one hand is like, getting your work done and getting to sleep, right? On the more sort of like touchy-feely side, it's producing work that you're proud of and that is making an impact and that other people see and it resonates with them and, it, and they, they have a reaction that's positive or strong, right? If you're doing a controversial piece 
and you're soliciting negative reactions from people, so long as you're true to what the message is, that's okay too. The best movies are the ones where the audience is split and they get into heated debates over, I like this character, how do you like that character? I hate that character, well, I like this storyline. Oh, that storyline was awful. That's beautiful. That's the best part about this business. And the same is true for news stories. You know, when you're doing television news, if you do a hard hitting piece and, 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 and you get death threats as a, <laughs> as a journalist, um, you've, you've struck a chord with people. I'm not advocating that and I'm not saying that's a good thing, but you can't tell me that that kind of like voracious response isn't, you know, a good thing in the sense that you're, 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 you're just telling a story that needs to be told. You know, if you're a documentarian or a news reporter or even just a creative filmmaker and you're not pissing people off, that shouldn't be the goal, but if you're not doing that, then you're not exploring stories to the full depth that you could be. One, um, I wanted to get into this a little bit, touching about awards. Awards are kind of this other form of acknowledgement or just a reaction or at least in judging people are looking at your piece and analyzing your piece. You've got Emmys, a part of Bitter Gesture. You you also have a James Beard Award nomination, which is I thought was pretty interesting. Which for what what piece was that for? Yeah, we we uh, co-produced um, several seasons of a of a web uh, series called the Chicago Restaurant Pastry Competition, and season one uh, earned a, a James Beard Award nomination, <clears throat> and we didn't win. It was a it was a drink mixing recipe blog that won, you know. And so, man, I want I'm gonna win a James Beard Award. Like I have to. I just I really wanna, I really wanna do that. Um, but yeah, it's so weird because like yeah, it's like I I am in a very sort of niche category there as a as a TV person and a web person who has a James Beard Award nomination. I I love that. And thank you for bringing that up because not everybody yeah, even knows what I, that is. <laughs> the Emmy is a very recognizable name, but the James Beard is, unless you know of it, it's a very, like you said, it's very niche. So when you do get like an acknowledgement like that or someone from, you know, the restaurant business acknowledges your piece of art, what does that mean to you? Oh man. Well, you know, it's, I, a lot of people are like, well, I don't care about awards and that's fine. I don't care about awards. I really like them. Um, because they're good for business, you know. It look on the on the on the selfish. I'm a I am a creative person. I have a very sh uh, delicate ego. I want everybody to like me, you know. And like being showered with with uh, praise and affection and winning golden trophies, uh, I'm just one of those people. Like it's kind of cool. But on the business side of things, there was a distinct shift. Um, and we'll use the Emmy as an example because, as you said, it's a very recognizable. It's a it's an institution. People know what an Emmy is. You know, we've won Telly Awards and Hermie Awards and all these things. Nobody knows what that means. It's nice to say we've won over a hundred production awards or 150 or whatever it is, but it doesn't really mean anything to people because they're industry awards. But when I walk into a room, and I say we've we've won nine Emmys, you know, regional Emmys but I was nominated for a daytime Emmy. What changed is the, the need for our prospective clients to see examples of our work. Before the Emmy Awards, you know, really before the Emmy nominations, um, we used to have to spend tons and tons of time proving to prospective clients that we knew what we were doing and we were good at it. The minute we won an Emmy, 
even a regional Emmy, and you walk into a meeting and, and that comes up, either because you mentioned it or they read about it or someone introduced us that way, the eyebrows are like, oh, I mean, it just, they know, oh, okay, well, these guys are good at what they do and I don't need to vet them because they've already been vetted. The James Beard Award nomination is the same, but it's less broad, it's much more niche. So when we go after food clients, even if it's like a manufacturing company that is making pots and pans, to say we're, we're a James Beard nominated production company, same exact thing. They're like, oh, that's, wow, that's, we don't know many of those, you know? So that's the, the business value of those kinds of things. And I would say, as a, you know, as a young person, if you have an opportunity to submit your work for a student Emmy, you should. You absolutely should because it means something when you get nominated and it means something when you, know, when, when you win and it will just help your career. It really will. Achieving an award, was that a goal of yours? Or is that just something that kind of you realized, oh, we could, we could actually submit our stuff and actually try to get it? I, with the early stuff, like when we won our first two Telly Awards, it was for Brad Ashman with Chicago Renovation, um, our very first client. And, <clears throat> I, you know, someone was like, oh, you should submit to this thing. And, and we did and, and we won and it was awesome. With the Emmys, I didn't even think it was achievable. I didn't think that a small production company that's not doing, you know, a primetime TV show, I, I never even thought about it. But we had an interview with a young lady who was a recent college graduate, and she had won a student Emmy. And I was so impressed with that. I was like, wow, I was like, I, I, we haven't, I never won a student Emmy. And so after the interview, I was like, how did you, how'd you do that? And she explained, well, you just, you apply and, yeah. and you know, and, and, and all that. And I was like, so I looked into it and we had just done a couple commercials for Ravinia Festival. And I was like, shit. I, I didn't know you could just submit your work, so I did, and we got nominated for the Ravinia commercials and the Chicago Restaurant Pastry Competition and won for the pastry competition that year, and it was, it was incredible. I will never forget the moment at the Emmy nominations party when our names were read as Emmy nominees for the very first time, which was like 2010 or something. It was so cool, and, and what a way to like validate 10 years of hard work to be like, wow, my peers looked at my work and thought it was good enough to win a, a regional Emmy. I mean, that was awesome. It was an ego boost and it was, it was desperately needed at the time too because the economy sucked. You know, we were really hurting uh, around 2010 because the, you know, the economy had tanked in 2008, 2009 and we were a little late to feel it. But when we did it, I remember having a stack of bills like, four inches high and I had to decide who got paid and who didn't, you know? So, so that it came at a, at an important time for us and it absolutely helped in the years to come to sell ourselves, to get more, more paid work. Morale is like very important. I think that's what an award validates. Did you have any of those uh, validating moments before the Emmy nomination? Oh, the first one that comes to mind is that we had done a, a documentary about, it was the underage drinking documentary that I mentioned before for uh, an organization in Lake Forest called LEAD. We interviewed a bunch of parents and people who were impacted by binge drinking. And the project was so well received that um, we got a very well-known musical group. We had just laid in music as a temp track and it's such a dangerous thing because whenever as an editor, if for the editors who are listening, when you use a temp track with a paid client, 
99.9% of the time, they're going to fall in love with that temp track, and you'll never find something as good as that. And you'll also probably not be able to afford to pay for the rights for the temp track. So just be careful. We've used so much music, like movie music and like popular music and like your clients are going to fall in love with it. And then you, you fall in love with it. It's just, just be careful. But in this particular case, we used temp track. And then because it was a nonprofit with a really good story, we actually reached out to the artist and they gave permission to use the music. So that was great and helped a lot, but it was so well received that documentary became required viewing for all junior high, high school students in Lake Forest and Lake Bluff and their parents and also the high school kids. And so it became part of the curriculum that students had to go home with the DVD, watch it with their parents, have a conversation with them and fill out a questionnaire together. Wow. And, you know, it's like that doesn't translate to a financial benefit for us we didn't get paid any more money for that but what a cool thing to be like man we did a project that was so good that it became part of the curriculum for a it whole required it was watch. awesome dude and then another one is we were just doing a corporate piece for um the civic federation of chicago every year they honor a business and a non-elected government official um with two separate awards and we would do a video for each one and Several years ago, the non-elected government official was a guy named Rocco Claps, who was the um, the head of, uh, I forget exactly which department, <clears throat> but we interviewed him around the time that the governorship was changing, and it was going from a Democratic governor to a Republican governor. He had been appointed by the previous Democratic governor, and he was literally packing up his office because whenever a new governor comes in, they, you know, they, they clean house, they get rid of everybody. And he was expecting to get fired with everyone else. Well, we did the video about him and it played. And then his staff reached out to the incoming governor and was like, watch this video. Do not fire this person. They did. They watched it. And he was the only person, to my understanding, who did not lose his job when the incoming governor came in. And he messaged me on Facebook and was like, your, your video played a huge part in me keeping my job. You know, and he's 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 since moved on because that was a while ago. But that's, you know, those kinds of things happen. And you're like, man, you're in a business that combines business and art and storytelling and has a direct impact on other people's perceptions and their lives. And it is just an incredible rush to be able to be a part of those kinds of projects. So as we wrap up, we always want to ask for advice. So I always like to say, what's your golden rule? So what's your golden rule on two part question? What's your golden rule for just any artist or visual artist? Yeah, I, I think and any artist and visual arts falls into this, you know, really at the end of the day, the, if I had to say there's a golden rule, it's just do, do what makes you happy you know, make art that you're satisfied with. And in the same way that, you know, I said, you're never going to be finished with a project, you're just going to stop a project. I think most artists would agree with that. It's like, you know, painters, sculptors, dancers, you just have to stop and say, it's as good as it's going to be right now. And I'm going to move on. I don't think that that is rare when an artist makes a piece and is like, this is perfect. I'm sure it happens, but probably not, <laughs> not all that often. So it's just be true to you and make the art that makes you happy. But at the same time, 
I think that artists should always be open to criticism. They don't need to always take the criticism, but they need to be soliciting it. And they certainly need to be open to criticism that's unsolicited, because unless you're making art in a basement and nobody's ever gonna see it and it is just for you, and only you, not even your spouse or your partner or your kids or anybody, your family, um, you know, you, you have to, if you wanna make a living at this, like you can't deny that other people are the ones who are gonna be giving you money for your art and so their, their opinion absolutely matters. You may disagree with it, but be open to, to getting the, you know, that, that kind of criticism. And then what would be your, your entrepreneurial golden rule or at least something to follow? This is, I hesitate to say this is easy for me to say because it's not easy. Like not having money at times isn't easy, but I would say don't worry about the money. Worry about doing good work. And that doesn't mean that you can just do the creative work and not pay your bills. You know, there's a reason why we busted our butts for two years delivering newspapers, because I'm not an idiot. Like, I knew that we needed income. But you can make it happen. Like, human beings are incredibly versatile. They're incredibly resilient. And, you know, you have a support network in family or friends if family is not, you know, something that uh, that is a support network for, you know, for people you have people that you know who can help you out. And if it means moving to LA and just crashing on couches for a year and hopping around because you can't afford your own place, just do it. Like you will survive. The worst thing that happens is you fail. And that's not so bad because that is an incredible learning experience. You know, I think that people who don't try don't fail. And the people who do try and fail become better artists than the ones who do try and don't fail because that is not reality. You know, you know young, young people who come into fame and fortune very quickly without ever failing have a very warped perspective of what it means to be an artist and what it means to be a person. You know, I, I would rather personally struggle and earn it than be handed something. I'm also in my early 40s, and if anybody wants to hand me something, uh, I'll take it. <laughs> no, you've definitely had a very, you've definitely had a very uh, long 21st century where you've earned a lot and you've gotten a lot done. I, I can definitely say that a music festival, uh, studio production company. That's it's it's a lot in your plate, but like you said, you like to just bring it on and take it and keep doing it. Yeah, and we try not to lose sight of what we really want, which is, you know, I, I want to be doing TV shows and commercials. Like I want I want to be producing work that people see on a national scale. And we have another company called Bitter Jester Creative Development, which is our kind of like our LA pitching company. So we do, you know, uh TV development and we're in development on a on a historical um limited series with a well-known actor in, in LA and, you know, wrote a pilot finally over the pandemic and he loves it. And hopefully we're going to start, you know, pitching that, but you know, it, it is also about giving yourself as many opportunities as you possibly can. You know, I, I, uh, I love reading autobiographies of people that I admire and Jim Henson's, uh, it wasn't an autobiography. It was a, it was a biography, but he, you know, Jim Henson is, arguably known for the Muppets. And 
the Muppets was just the one thing of 12 dozen things that he was doing that landed. And he's grateful for it, but like he didn't want that to define his career. He was happy, but they were just puppets. He would take them off and toss them in the corner and people get so upset because like, how can you throw Kermit in the corner? He's like, it's not Kermit, it's a piece of felt. You know, I, I like hearing that because man, it humanizes the guy. It's like he just, he tried as many things as he could. It was all around entertainment and creativity and entertaining young people and the Muppets is what landed. And so he, he went with it. You know, but he could have very easily been a club owner because he had like ideas for psychedelic trippy clubs that he wanted to start that just never took off. And, you know, I, I dig it. At the end of the day, people who are interested in making art are very similar <laughs> and we just need to stick together and support one another and not be unwilling to, to knock yourself down a couple pegs and work on someone else's project because you'll learn a lot. Nick, this was this was a great conversation. I enjoyed your time. I loved your stories about how you kind of started out and and how you've you've grown into something pretty successful. And it's definitely an empire, like you said. Yeah, it's a little one. I would love for Bitter Jester to last beyond my lifetime. Um, mm. We'll see. You know, it'd be it'd be great to you know in, in the second half of my life to be doing television programs and make some money to the point where I can start a studio that's doing other people's projects. And that's mm. when you really start to kind of build a legacy in terms of entertainment. So if that happens, uh, it'd be awesome. Who knows if it will at this point, I'm just trying to like get some projects sold and, <laughs> and see what happens. But I haven't, I haven't, uh, become, I haven't become so jaded or, uh, discouraged yet that I'm ready to give up. Not even close. Thank you to Nick for coming on today's episode. He is all over the place, which is crazy like he said, but it's also very admirable. I think he exemplifies that it's important to just be a hard worker and to to want things, to have motivation and just go for it. Uh, and he, he's a good measure of success in this business. It's one of the reasons for this podcast. We want to talk to all kinds of media professionals, and that's why it's important for you whoever you are and wherever you are in your career, to talk to the professionals closest to you, those who you think are successful, not just A-list reporters or directors or producers, anyone. And as Nick said, I think it's fair to just be nice and be respectful of one another. And I think that makes it a little easier to work with everyone if we're all doing that. So Thank you again to Nick, and thank you, the listener, for getting this far in the podcast. We appreciate you being on this ride with us. This has been The Pursuit, a Natus Junior Board podcast. <laughs>